0: Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in the living God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, and to be willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word from you, and we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take it to make application to our lives. We wait upon you. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a term that was made popular a couple of decades ago, especially in the book by Manny Milton, Trueblood, a Quaker ethicist, he talked about the cut flower generation. Cut flower generation was, in his definition, our children that were born as in the 60s and 70s who had all the advantages and had all the education, all the appearance of beauty, but had no rootedness. And he said he feared that if they were the cut flower generation, they could not last uh, long through the... Trials and Tempest of Life. And then there was a play released in 1984-85 in San Francisco by a woman named Sage Allen who did this play called Cut Flowers, and she was a child of Woodstock and the Love Generation, and as she surveyed the landscape of the 80s and her children, and she saw nothing but bleakness and despair, and she says that this play is a wake-up call to our society which is in danger It's a dark summation of the bitter fruits of the 1960s. And she was interviewed by the LA Times and she said this, she says, we don't hear much about middle-class troubles today, but when I consider a dozen friends of mine, most of whom have had kids and most of whom have had kids who have gone to jail or run away or died and that they were given all the life's advantages and they still end up lost or worse And she says, I just don't get it, what has happened to them. And so she wrote a play entitled, Cut Flowers. A couple years ago, I cut an article out, an interview with Mick Jagger, Sir Michael Philip Jagger, by the way, he's been knighted. Mick Jagger will be 72 this summer, guys. So, okay, anyway. Mick Mick Jagger says this, he says, he said, I've been through several, two failed marriages, numerous girlfriends... Of course, his last girlfriend tragically took her life. She said, but if you've studied or have even a passing knowledge of animal behavior, it's hard to see how our rules and regulations regarding sexuality ever fit into our culture, close quote. In other words, he says that, that his response to life is to understand that we're all part of the animal kingdom, and we can't ask for humankind to act better than the animal kingdom at large. A year later, uh, Kate Hudson was interviewed, Kate Hudson, uh, I asked somebody, Kate Hudson, they said, you had to lose a guy in, is it 10 days? Okay, 10 days, okay. Some of you could do had to lose a guy in one day, but that's beside the point. So Kate Hudson was interviewed, and uh, she had just ended her marriage, this was several years ago, uh, 2010, and says this, that uh, she says, I'm particularly perplexed by the notion of monogamy, which is one man and one woman for life. We call it marriage. She says, "I don't think we're made up to ever be monogamous. We are animals, emotionally and physically. But that doesn't mean she, that she believes in non-exclusive sexual relationships." She goes on and says, "Quote: I could never be in a relationship that was not monogamous because I don't know how to. Uh, I could ever deal with it. There is something sacred about the relationship that is broken." if you're unfaithful. If we're going to go down this monogamy path, let's just know it's hard because when you start hurting people and cheating, that is so mean, close quote. Uh, Okay. Uh, I read that though, and apart from a few things, the thing that hit me is is here's a young woman who's very gifted. By the way, she claims to be a Buddhist, as does her mama, Goldie Hawn. Uh, here's a woman who's very gifted, and she's crying out from her soul. I long for a long-term relationship that is filled with fidelity and faithfulness. But my basic presupposition, my worldview, is that that's not possible because we're just part of the animal kingdom, and to lay that on somebody is inconsistent and wrong. So, so I, I just hold that as a couple of examples, and just say we need to understand our worldview. And, 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 and that's why the, the first day of every month, I, I spend time meditating on Psalm 1 that says, Blessed is the man uh, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. And he's going to be like a tree, planted, hear that, planted by streams of water. Whose, whose leaf does not wither, who always yields his fruit in season, whatever he does prospers. Plant it. No cut flowers. Then he says this, not so the wicked. The wicked are like the chaff that the wind blows away, the tumbleweed. Blow here and they blow there. They are the cut flower generation. And, and so it's vitally important for us to really deal with what we believe and why we believe. And let me just say this. We live in dangerous times, perilous times. And sometimes when you're in the middle of a cultural movement, it is difficult to see what's really going on because you're just immersed in it. And and so part of my job as a pastor is to be a watchman standing on the wall saying, be careful. And I just say, we live in in dangerous times. We we live in times when when, when basic standards of morality have burst all, all bonds. That, that, that which was not scare, was, was scarcely spoken of just a couple of decades, now was trumpeted. We live in a time when, when, when people can give basic advice behind closed doors regarding what we would say biblically is normative sexual behavior, and that person can be held up for ridicule, ridicule and really a termination. It's a perilous times. Therefore, it is important for us to, to, to understand that. And I read a sermon about this by a guy who died in 1688, so it's not a very trendy sermon. But he said, when you live in perilous times, you should mourn the day. Psalm 119 the psalmist says, I weep bitter tears for those who do not know your law. We should mourn for our culture. Mourn for the cut flower. Mourn for the rootlessness. Mourn for the type of uh, worldview that we're passing on to our children and our children's children. And we should... Make it our ambition to preach Christ and to lift him up. And also we, this writer says, we should labor not to be infected by a culture that's adrift. He says we should not have, quote, like thoughts of great sins, close quote. In other words, it's easy to say, well, that's really not a big sin because you always hold it to the standard of scripture. So, I, w- I would say to us as we look at life, do not have light thoughts of really great sins. Perilous times. So, with so that as a backdrop, I want to talk this morning about two basic worldviews a worldview that says there may be a God, but he's undefinable, and he's not involved in my life, and a worldview that says I believe in the Trinitarian God of the Bible, who is the great creator God who's the redeeming king and who's the sustaining Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two radically different worldviews that are basically spelled out in this passage that we're looking at this morning. The, the first worldview is, basically makes this statement uh, that, that, that there is a God, but can he really be defined? Paul says this, as for those who are rich in this present age, see, th- this worldview is a present age only looking at life. As for those who are rich in this present age, charge them, don't be arrogant, or to put their their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, so you can tease out their worldview. The the first statement is that they live for this present age, they live for this day only. I've said the last few weeks, Martin Luther said, I live for this day and the day of judgment, or the day of my death. I live all of life in light of the eternity that will be lived in the presence of of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These people say something like this. Well, we're going to live for the present day. We may believe in the God, but he's undefinable, and he cannot really be the personal God of the universe, so he's just kind of some type of theistic, undefinable being. The second thing is, is this. He says, charge them not to be arrogant. Now, as I thought about this, if you believe that men and women are self-made, that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that you call the shots, and you have any modicum of success, and many of you have been wildly successful, to be honest, and you're heading that way, if you believe that, it is impossible not to be arrogant. You may disagree. I, I, it's just, if you believe that you call the shots and you've made it and it's, you, it's all up to you, it's impossible not to, to a degree, be arrogant. Then there's a corresponding reality. This is point number three. But, but, but arrogant, uh, conversely, followers of Jesus are taught by our Savior to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's just, just your daily, it's just your daily grace, Lord. I need your daily grace today. <clears throat> It's a very famous poem. I'll put it in the worship guide. <clears throat> it's written by a man named William, William Ernest Henley. It's called Invictus, which means the conqueror. William Ernest Henley wrote this poem. Uh, he has, as a young child, he had uh, tuberculosis. As a young adult, male, they had to amputate his left leg. And so he wrote Invictus as he recuperated from the amputation of his left leg. He was a big, gregarious, fun-loving, wonderful man, who had a bare understanding of God as only a Creator God that cannot be defined. And and so, just as a sideline, he he developed a great friendship with a guy named Robert Louis Stevenson, and Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Treasure Island, and in Treasure Island there was a pirate with a wooden leg, what's his name? Long John Silver. And he based Long John Silver's character on his good buddy William Ernst Henley. If you ever own Jeopardy, you can win Jeopardy, okay, in that regard. So, so, anyway, Long John Silver, you know, parrot on his shoulder, you know, or whatever. The most famous pirate before Johnny Depp, okay. <laughs> so, anyway, he wrote this poem. And you know, I've, I've got it here in the To, to me, this, this poem is, is really a shake your fist in the face of the triune God point. It's a powerful point. Out of the night that covers me black as a pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody yet unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet, the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scrolls. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Now listen to me. So this poem, by the way, one of my heroes of the last century, Nelson Mandela, had this poem on the wall of his prison for 27 years in South Africa. I wish it had matthew 11, 27 to thirty but he had this. So, so you look at this, and it's a, it's, it's a shake your fist in the face of God. I think whatever God's may be you can't he says you can't define God. Yeah, whatever God 's may be under the bludgeonings of chance, everything is just an impersonal. Game of Russian roulette, there's no shepherding king. and that's what He says, looms after this place of wrath and tears, looms but the horror of the shade. We have no understanding of what looms beyond the grave. It's just the horror of the shade. There's no eternity of heaven or hell. It matters not how straight the gate, which mocks Matthew 7, where Jesus says, broad is the road and wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the road and straight is the gate that leads to life, and only a few find it. He says, I don't care about that. It matters not how charged with punishment of the scrolls. Revelation 20 and 21 says there is a book of works that will give an account before the living God for about that next week. But it's to shake your fist in the face of God. And so a man like this, the apostles' creed for him would be this I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth, period. That's, all, that's as far as he can go. That's his worldview. It's up to me. Now here's the corresponding reality. I hope you understand this. To me, the corresponding reality is that, that there is a, a continual seepage of, and the loss of hope because the temporary gods that we embrace can never deliver. There's only one who can ultimately deliver, and he is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Shepherd in Christ. But we we have a tendency to place our hope in temporary gods, and these temporary gods can never deliver, and we end up frustrated time after time after time, and then you become cynical and, and, and worn down and beat down and uncaring. For example, some of you are going to get married soon. Some of you have just gotten married, and you say to yourself, I have finally met the one who will meet my deepest needs. I've met the one who responds to me when I'm discouraged with a warm embrace and words of comfort. I've met the one who will be there when, to, to talk about anything I want to talk about and have witty repartee and who will be up when I'm down and will be a comfort to, and a shoulder to cry on. I've met the one who will meet my deepest needs. You're going to be disappointed. You think you're marrying a paladin on a charger in your Marian Sancho Panza, if you ever read Don Quixote. And then you say, and if this person does not respond the way I want them to, I will change them. Your marital spouse was never meant to bear that burden. They can't. That's why you go to the cross first. You glory in the cross first. Walking the halls today, four or five brand new babies. I mean, little babies. And there's nothing more glorious than holding a little baby. Okay? But you hold this little baby, and you say to yourself, finally, the repository of all of my hopes in this little child. This little child will grow to be be great, will grow to be wonderful, talented, And this child will make me sing every day the rest of my days. Now, I love being a parent. But if you set yourself up to believe that, you're going to be disappointed. Because you know what? They have your gene code. (laughs) The only hope you have is if you find a really good adoption agency. Okay? Your children were never meant to bear that burden that only Christ can. Physical beauty. Physical beauty. If you go to the internet, on the internet, article will pop up, can you believe these stars are 50 years old, question mark? Well, really, the title of the article is a statement about the fact that 50 is not 20. Man, they're 50, but they look pretty good, but they're still 50. You know what I mean? You just, if you put your your hopes in eternal youth, you're going to be disappointed. We had a have a wonderful school here, Palmetto Christian Academy, with wonderful children, joy, wonderful. Oh, I love Palmetto Christian. Anyway, we had a substitute teacher come in the first grade. All of our first grade teachers are very young women. And so the substitute teacher came in the early 50s and the child raised his hand in the middle of the day and said, excuse me, do you have a picture of yourself when you were good looking? <laughs> now, uh, there's some truth to that, isn't there? You know, you, 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 just, you just go there. I we're having the Cooper River Bridge Run in three weeks. The Cooper River Bridge Run has categories, you know, under, under 25, 25 to 29, 30 to 35. Why? Because the older you get, the slower you get. They only have one for the Kenyans and everybody else. That's what they ought to do. But, but, but they don't. I mean, so, so it's, 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 it's just the, the only one that was meant to bear that burden is Jesus. A general election is coming up and there'll be three weeks next spring, late winter, when this state is the focal point of all creation. And after that, we'll be forgotten. And you're going to have people running around saying, we finally found him, we finally found her. And you, you haven't, you haven't. There's only been one person in history that you could say, we finally found him. And those words are used in John chapter 1 when Philip goes to his brother and says, we finally found the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about. He's the only one you can say that about. Nothing else was meant to bear that burden. So so that's worldview number one. Worldview number two, very quickly, is this. It says, God set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So just two points about this. It richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We we serve the living God who is personal and glorious and triune and is is overflowing with with beauty and grace and grandeur. And he's provided us with everything for our enjoyment. And I think of Romans chapter 8 where Paul says this. He's talking about the glory of our redemption. And he says, what should we say in response to these things? Our salvation, God's eternal love for us. If God is for us, and who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can lay any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It is Jesus Christ who is the one who died. And more than that, was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. And so you tease that out and you say, this God who richly provides and watches over us and cares for us has given us everything for life and enjoyment. First Timothy 6 verse 17. So I, I look at that, look at the scope of our redemption, the greatness of the creation of Christ, and then I say it is my responsibility in this worldview to enjoy and delight in all that God has given me. That's a statement of discipleship, to enjoy and embrace life, because life is a foretaste of the glory to come. And so when we, when we eat a sumptuous meal. We don't start thinking about how the taste buds are tied to this part of the body system and how it goes to this and that. Isn't isn't it marvelous that this this impossible mistake happened and we can taste. We say, man, that is good. Thanks be to God for taste. Or we're going to walk out of this building into a beautiful Charleston spring. And you're going to go, wow. Look at that oak tree. Look at that panoramic view from the bridge. Look at that hawk. Look at those flowers blooming. You're not going to say, Isn't it the impersonal mistake? How did, you know, isn't this? No, you'll say, Man, look at that bird and how it's aerodynamically made and how the feathers do this. It's just amazing. And so the other, the other day I was on a trip and I had a group of discs and I was. Through a disc, and it was the Arias Apuccini, and uh, it it hit. one, I I just love them. It's it's called Nessun Dorma, which means None shall sleep, and it's this man singing his heart out. And I don't know Italian, so like, but it's so beautiful, man. You you're going down the road, you roll down the windows, and you crank it up, even if it's 15 degrees, and it was, and it just stuns you. This beauty. And I listened to that, back to that listen, third time listened to it, moved to tears. It's so beautiful. And then I thought to myself, because I'm the only one in the car, I'm thinking to myself, can't talk to anybody else. Think to myself, say to the Lord, I, 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 should, I should labor to be stunned to silence or moved to tears by a beautiful painting, a beautiful piece of music that expresses the creative energy of God. And God, forgive me for being a Philistine about this stuff. This stuff, this Puccini, it was just incredible. Now, now, before you doubt my manliness, I'm looking forward to March Madness, okay? Just uh, want to play the man card right here. You can love Puccini and March Madness, okay? So, so, so I, I just say it's our responsibility. So when we have the embrace of a friend, we glory in that. Because God has given us all things. Let me quote Calvin a couple of times here. This is John Calvin in his commentary on Psalms and then a sermon from Deuteronomy. Just two paragraphs. He says that that we may enjoy the sight of God. He must come forth to view with his clothing. That is creation. That is to say we must first cast our eyes upon the very beautiful fabric of the world in which he wishes to be seen by us. For in this world, God blesses us in such a way as to give us a mere foretaste of his kindness, and by that taste to entice us to desire heavenly blessings with which we may be satisfied. As soon as we acknowledge God to be the supreme architect who has erected the beauteous fabric of the universe, our minds must necessarily be ravished it's a great word. Ravished with wonder at his infinite goodness, wisdom, and power. Calvin says that when you see the beauty of creation and realize it's a foretaste, you should go, stunned. And, and of course, he lived in Geneva, which is a really pretty place. What would he have said if he lived in Charleston, though? That was an arrogant statement. Second statement, Deuteronomy. God of his own nature is inclined to allure us to himself by gentle and loving means as a father goes about to win his children. By laughing with them and giving them all they desire. If a father could always laugh with his children and fulfill their desires, all his delight would surely be in them such a one does God show himself to be towards us in Christ. Oh, delight. So, so this worldview says, I'm going to, to delight in the goodness of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to be glad in Him, to, to glory in Him. The second point here is that there's profound hope. He says, Don't, don't be arrogant or to put your hope in wealth because it's so uncertain. It's just uncertain. It's just uncertain. It's here today. Gone to, it's just, but, but fix your eyes on God. Even, even this week, I was reading the Wall Street Journal on Monday, and they said just two years ago, China was the emerging economic power. Europe was stable, and America seemed to be going down. Now the, America's employing more people than they have since 1998. America's economy seems to be revving up. China is going down, and Europe is on the mat. Two years. Turn around again in two years, five years, whatever. So, so profound hope because God is God. And so you see, if, if you believe in this worldview that says God is glorious, he's trinitarian, he's eternal, the, 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 the view of the apostles, then, then you can say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. All of God's people throughout all the ages. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, or the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and I believe in the life everlasting, amen. That worldview works. That's what Paul is challenging the church to do at Ephesus through Timothy. And then he says this, application statement, very quickly. He says, as you understand these things, three things. He says, command them to do good to be rich in good deeds to be generous and willing to share do good just just go out and do good do acts of loving kindness and service to those around you jesus says let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven just do good take a meal Take someone to the doctor. Share your kindness. Uh, there's a book entitled Joy for the World, recent book by a guy named Greg Forster. He says this. He says, The materialistic view of, of life in the marketplace drives modern economic man to workaholism, envy, greed, anxiety, and a host of other ills. Conversely, The great cultural task of the Christian is to be, broadly speaking, innovative entrepreneurs. Good bosses. Good employers. People who pursue justice in the marketplace. He says people who are productive and who are more creative and generous and honest and humane than other people. He says, quote, the whole life of a person has to turn away from selfishness and to serve God and his neighbor like the early Protestants. Christians must truly regard their work as their divine calling and a crucible for character and a conduit through which to benefit and bless those around them. He says, our neighbors won't find our message plausible until they see and practice how hard work and humanely productive companies are a blessing. Ordinarily cultural contact with Christians is how that will happen, but only after the believer. Continually changes the way they live out their lives. Your your work is your calling, whether you're a accountant or an attorney or a teacher or a homemaker or a physician or whatever, that's your calling. It's a calling from God. Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Martin Luther said this. He said, a true Christian lives and labors on earth not for himself but for his neighbor. Therefore, the whole spirit of his life impels him to do even that which he needs not to do, but which is profitable and necessary for the welfare of his neighbor. He says, be generous and willing to share. I'll be very quick here. Be generous and willing to share. Uh, um, I said last week. I'll say next week. But um, I believe... According to 1 Corinthians, well, first of all, let's go to Proverbs 11 real quickly. Proverbs 11, verse 24 and 25. One person gives freely, but gains even more, while another person withholds what is justly due, and it results only in want or comes to poverty. A generous man will be prosperous, and he who refreshes others will be refreshed himself. So look at the last clause. A generous man will prosper. Whoever refreshes, others will himself be refreshed. You look at Luke 9, you look at John 12, where Jesus says a, a, a seed of grain must fall into the ground and die. He says in Luke chapter 9 that if you find your life, you'll lose it, but if you lose your life for me, you'll find it. And throughout the scripture, it says you've got you to live in the light of the reality of all that Christ is for you, and when you do that, you'll take over the life that's truly the life, Paul says here. And, and so, he says to the church at Ephesus, a fairly well-off church, be generous and willing to share. Be generous. And so I've said last week that I, 1 Corinthians 16 says on the first day of the week, you should systematically lay aside money for the welfare of the kingdom. You should think about it conscientiously and you should plan for it. I believe, church, that, that the biblical tithe should be the norm for the believer, we, you you give ten percent and then more as God enables you, but but you you sit and you do it soberly. The Bible calls that the first fruits. You don't wait till the end of the month. You every time we get paid and thank you for paying me. You're very kind to me. Uh, I, I used to sit down and write a check. Now I, I do it electronically. Okay, but it's the first fruits. I don't wait till everything else is paid. I do that first. And and and, and I, I get. And excitement, really, when I do that, because I'm thinking about how that is going to extend the kingdom and bless other people through our missions, through our giving, through our campus ministries, through our our grade-level ministries, through our school, on and on and on and on. And I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And it's a joy for us to do that, Sarah and I, to do that. And And God blesses those who give with his presence and his power, and maybe other things than that, but you have the benediction and the blessing of God upon your life, and I want you to understand that. I really do. If, if we as a church got hold of that concept and really embraced it, good grief, what the Lord could do, as we understand, the stewardship of gifts across the board. Wow. I think about last year giving over 21% of our giving, 22% goes to missions. What could happen if we really, and just blessing people just go and go and go? But so, soberly reflect upon this. Listen, it is possible to confess Christ with all of your heart and to live as a mere theist, to not think about eternity, to not think about living in the presence of God. To be a Bible study student and then I'll stop and say, I live every moment of every day in the presence of Abba, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, let's live with joy and pray with sobriety as we walk before God. Let's pray. So, Lord, thank you for the, the Bible. Thank you that we open it and we hear from you that our teachers and pastors are just the mailmen. They just deliver it, but you've spoken it. Uh, so give grace, uh, give empowerment. Lord, really change our hearts continuously, continuously. Um, do a work in us and in our city in bringing people to yourself. Do a work in our uh, ministries that are geared toward young people and college students and singles and young married to let them have a rootedness in a culture that is not rooted. May we live with love and diligence and compassion and tenderness and forgive us for ever being uh, arrogant. Uh, for, forgive us, Lord, for ever triumphantly saying When we get a good report from some area, I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. Just forgive us for that. uh, Help us instead to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you'd give us our daily bread, that you'd not allow us to go into evil, and that you'd get the glory. Uh, Abba, Father. So thanks be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the glorious reality of the triune God. And lead us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.